0: This is my playbook. I'm Simon Mundy and in this podcast created by Greenhouse Sports, we'll be hearing from a host of inspiring people about who and what inspired, supported and encouraged them during difficult moments. We'll find out what they've learned along the way, as well as what they want to share and pass on. Greenhouse Sports is the charity that uses sport to help disadvantaged young people and communities. Their core belief is that every child deserves opportunities and a fair chance to get on in life. And through Greenhouse's coaches and partners, they look to make that a reality. The work they do is about encouraging young people through sport and teaching them the life skills they need. 2022 is Greenhouse's 20th anniversary. And over the last 20 years, The charity has helped more than 50,000 children in London, but there are a further 4 million children across the UK right now that they would like to help. And if you'd like to find out more about their work and how you could help support another generation of young people, please head to greenhousesports.org to find out more. In the meantime, to this episode, in which I speak to one of Britain's greatest ever athletes and Olympians, Seb Coe. He won 1,500 metres gold at the 1980 and 1984 Olympics, was absolutely fundamental in securing London as the host city for the 2012 Olympic Games and is now the president of World Athletics. Sebco is also an ambassador for greenhouse sports through the Sebastian Coe Foundation.
1: That's the great quality that good coaches bring. You sort of feel that you're the only one that matters in their world. On the occasions I have met Her Majesty the Queen, she has exactly that ability. And it's born, I think, of a deep interest in
0: people. In this episode, Seb talks about the power of opportunity and role models, the key moments along his journey, as well as why organizations like Greenhouse Sports are able to use the power of sport to change lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Lord Coe, what an absolute pleasure
1: to speak to you, to see you. How are you? I'm in great form, thank you. I'm sitting here in my World Athletics headquarters in Monaco. The sun is shining and, you know, all's well with the world, but it's only 11 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Well,
0: bizarrely, the sun is shining here too, which takes me back to the halcyon days of London 2012, which is one of many things... We're going to uh, touch on during the course of our chat, but I do appreciate you sparing the time because I know you have a very busy
1: intray. Have you got a lot on your plate today? Yeah, I do. Um, because <laughs> of the concertinering of the calendar, I'm off to the Commonwealth Games, the European Championships, the North America, Central America, Caribbean Championships, and then into the end of the Diamond League season. So. It's busy at the moment, operationally. Indeed, yes, goodness, that's
0: tiring just listening to that. So clearly you've still got the energy burning that took you to those famous Olympic triumphs.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, look, I I genuinely feel privileged to be doing what I'm doing. I joined an athletics club at the age of 11. I sort of made it through the ranks into the senior team, uh, ran internationally for a number of years, and, you know, I'm now president of the sport that I owe everything to. So, yeah, why wouldn't I have yes. the energy to, to do this for as long as I can? Indeed. And I mean, your story does read
0: a little bit like a, not even a little bit like, very much like a, a film script, uh, Lord Coe. Do you mind if I call you Seb? No, I would much prefer you to call me Seb, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's Seb perfect. it is. Um, and I'd love to extract sort of the lessons that you've learnt along the way And there's so much to talk about. So let's dive in. And I want to return to your childhood days. And in particular, walking in to do the 11 plus. Because this was a a bit of a key moment. So can we start there, please?
1: Yeah, look, I wasn't a complete dunce. But I wasn't really academically at that stage probably that focused. I would think I was like a lot of 11-year-olds. You know, I was you know, trying to figure out how I would get to the next Chelsea match. I was beginning to develop a real interest and love of sport. I'd started, um, you know, I started running at sort of primary school level. And, you know, nothing really, I, I guess, like for most kids, nothing really seemed to be that important. And I failed my eleven plus. It's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I then went to a secondary mod and we moved to Sheffield, um, and I'm probably one of the few kids around, or certainly people around, that actually can claim that they went to a secondary modern, a comprehensive, and a grammar school. Because I failed my 11 plus, went to a secondary modern. I then, my, my secondary modern in the early 70s suddenly became a, a, a comprehensive, and then in order to do my A-levels, which were not, available at the school I was at, I then had to go to a grammar school. So I finally made it to a, gram- a grammar school at the age of 16. <laughs> yeah, you know, so the you know, it was, there <laughs> weren't five entirely lost years, but actually having looking back, I'm really pleased I had that experience because I think it, you know, it, it taught me a whole heap more about the human condition really than had I, had I sort of been through a more elite uh, education. And
0: everyone faces setbacks and they can always feel crushing at the time and of monumental importance as if, you know, you fail an exam and that means that your future is not going to be what you hoped it to be. But, uh, you know, such an important lesson, particularly for young people, is that just because you, things don't go the way you hoped that they would, as they didn't view, that's not the end.
1: Well, I, I, look. I will make two observations. The first is the the ridiculous, bizarre nature of sort of trying to select kids at the age of eleven uh, mm. and telling a small percentage that they're the chosen few, and the rest of us that you know you, you it doesn't there's there is no empirical evidence at all in anything in any education model that would really lead you to think that that is a sensible solution at the age of 11. Um, but actually it was interesting. I interviewed, uh, I have a foundation. Um, I interviewed Toto Wolf the other day and I talked, I asked Toto exactly the same type of question you're asking me and, and Toto's view team boss of Mercedes, the dynasty, eight world championships in a row. I mean, He's created something that's unlikely to be repeated, certainly uh, in the foreseeable future. And he thought that performance and enduring performance was normally born during formative years from massive setback, hurt or loss. Mm. And his view was that, you know, you, you wouldn't go out to seek those situations but for instance he lost his father when he was his young, when he was young his mother was actually a doctor but came from you know they came from a modest background everything he did he felt he was driven because of that uh, that that early adversity and there's no question to me that if you speak to a lot of people a lot of high performing people there's often a moment of inflection where they've had to deal with something you know, physically or mentally, fairly traumatic. Certainly, if you look at our top Paralympic athletes, you know, so many will mm. will tell you that story that they've come back from from real challenge to excel. Uh, and so, look, I, I'm not saying that <clears throat> you would wish adversity on anybody, but there does seem to be some commonality amongst top performers. Uh, in any sphere, and some moment where they've had that come to Jesus moment.
0: Yes, yes, I, that's something I've read a lot about myself as well. So, a couple of questions on that. So, was failing the eleven plus? Did it feel at the time like a terminal thing? Was it traumatic for you?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I wouldn't say it was traumatic, but I remember feeling, you know, that whole group of people I knew in the school went in one direction. And I was going to a school where, yeah. you know, I, I, I was tended to be in the garden most of the day, you know, planting potatoes. I mean, I, you know, at the age of 13, I couldn't read or write, but I could, I could spot a dodgy King Edwards from, you know, 30 <laughs> yards. And I always remember, funnily enough, I, I do remember, history has always been my passion. History has always been my passion. And I remember handing in a piece of homework at this school and being called out after the lesson by the teacher. And he looked at me and he said, handed me the book. He said, why are you here? And I said, I didn't really know the answer. I didn't really understand the question. I said, I, he said, no, 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 seriously. Why are you here? So I said, well, because basically I have to be. And he went, no, 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 no. Why are you at this school? He said, you shouldn't be at this school. And he handed me the, the, my homework back. And he said, did you write, did you do this yourself? And I went, yeah, of course I did. You know, I'm not parents that were going to sit there writing history essays for me with four other kids in the family. And he said, well, you shouldn't be here. And it was the first time that I realized, you know, again, looking back, and in a way, he gave voice to what I've just said, that mm. at the age of 11, there are all sorts of passions that kids have. And our challenge in society now is to unearth that talent and dig deep because yeah. talent and ability doesn't come in nicely wrapped boxes with pink ribbons on. You, know, you really do have to, 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 to dig. And, and I, <clears throat> I actually think that the litmus test for any, any country is in two key areas. What do you do to encourage people with passion that they may not even know within the education system to excel and to be set on a path that you know great teachers, great coaches start with a, a blank canvas and they just help the athlete or, or the student with a few brush strokes. And and then the there has to be a point, and it's often an inspirational teaching or coaching that is the, you know, is is the diving board. Uh, and then the second litmus test for me is is are you really, as a country, prepared to extol and support excellence and fund it properly? And I don't really care whether it comes in sport or academic or business or or the cultural um, the cultural sector, but you know really if you have outstanding talent you you really do have to help resource it because it's mm. you know it's one of those things that defines and distinguishes the the nation it's it's a brand value uh, and i do think that mm. how how you deal with excellence in a country is for me pretty totemic of what else will happen in that country
0: we've spoken about setbacks not necessarily being a bad thing and as you've said the unfairness in many ways of being judged at 11 at such a formative age but another key thing both in your story but certainly from a societal point of view is opportunity itself meeting the right people at the right time going to the right clubs the right schools etc and in your case so Two Well, a place and a person I'd like to bring up is, first of all, that decision to move to Sheffield. Had that not happened, do you think you would be potentially sitting where you are right now? And then also, obviously, mentors is a, a key thing we're talking about. David Jackson, the geography teacher. Could you just talk to those two things, please, Seb? <laughs>
1: yeah, Sheffield it was, it was a really big move for me. I mean, I was, you know, I was born in London. I, I've got a, a real... You know, quite a interesting background because my grandfather was Indian. Uh, my mother was born in the hotel that the family had in Delhi. Uh, she and her sister then returned to the UK. Uh, my dad is an East Londoner, born from very, very modest. I mean, really modest. I mean, modest is a bit of a euphemism. I mean, he was born very, very poor. And i was born in london but he was an engineer um, who ended up sort of moving north all the time so we went from london to when i was a toddler to the west midlands where he had many engine manufacturing engineering roles uh, and then uh, we lived in stratford-on-avon in, in warwickshire and then he got a production directorship at um, a cutlery business in Sheffield. So we moved to Sheffield when I was about 11. And that was really a big moment for me. Would I have done what I did in athletics had I not been in Sheffield? Possibly, but I have to say, you know, being there in a great athletics club in an environment crossing paths with an inspirational teacher who was also my form teacher, who also, this is David Jackson, who ran uh, cross-country for Derbyshire schools, who actually, you know, identified my talent in a slightly bizarre set of circumstances, because I was playing football at the time. The referee, the, the PE teacher, thought I was using language that was unbecoming, and he sent me off around the school play playing fields to, to do five laps as punishment. David Jackson happened to be out there because he also took PE uh, and was a good hockey player. And he was taking a hockey lesson and looked at this sort of skinny kid running around the school. And he went, okay, he actually walked up to me and he just said, I think you might be in the wrong sport. We then struck up a friendship and, and that was fantastic because first of all, he also was responsible for my passionate love of maps and all things geographical. Um, he also he also took me for what was in old money religious instruction, R-E-R-I, and he'd often sidle up to me in a lesson and he'd go, because he understood the nature of endurance running, he'd come up to me and say, how's your mileage this week? And if I looked at him and went, well, you know, it's... A, bit on the low side he'd go off you go so he would he would actually slip me from the class so he was an atheist Dave but he was I ended up teaching re so this probably says a great deal more about my spiritual underpinning and his than it does about very much else but he was a he was an inspirational figure and and and, and throughout that period of course I went to, I joined an athletics club. He encouraged me to do that. I joined an athletics club. My father, who was an engineer, classically had that view that, you know, the job of an engineer is to observe and then sort of take things apart and then put them back together again so they work better. He watched at the side of the track while I was doing these training sessions with the club coaches there And in the most respectful way, just didn't think what he watched me doing. It didn't make a lot of sense to him, although he didn't come from a track and field background. He came from a cycling background. So, and he only went down to the track, because my mother couldn't figure out where her 11-year-old, 12-year-old son was going every Tuesday night, Thursday night, and Sunday mornings, and Saturdays, you know, off racing everywhere. So he was basically sent to check out what I was doing. Um, And he then slowly sort of almost osmotically absorbed everything he was you know he, he understood endurance he was a racing cyclist he was actually a a, a pretty decent road racer he ran he cycled for hern hill uh one of the, the you know the good cycling clubs in south london and that's how he became involved so it, it was so those are the t- those are two huge figures in my athletics career and David remained, well, you know, remained a friend sadly until he, he passed away a few a, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And David was the first to write a note of congratulation or commiseration if I lost a race or it was something that he has observed, you know, in the the vagaries of public life that he wanted to draw my attention to. So he was an assiduous letter writer, and I've I've kept all his letters. And you now it was a he was a lovely guy.
0: Yes. So he was a RE teacher and an atheist, but he was clearly a a touch of a a guardian angel. And it's amazing how... A great humanitarian,
1: I mean, a real humanitarian. He was always in the corner of the underdog who fought tooth and nail for people in his class. And people like that, Seb, if you are
0: fortunate enough to come across someone like that, the difference someone like that can make in the life of a young person, as he did in yours, is is crucial and, and key isn't it and so the, the children who get those opportunities are very fortunate
1: yes, it is and it, and look sadly it can it can be a little bit of a lottery you know the number of people you you know them, you have friends who will tell you that their passion for something was inspired by great teaching mm. or great coaching mm. and it 's always been my view that if you if you expose young people to something really different uh, at a formative point in their lives, you can absolutely set the direction of travel. You can absolutely set the direction of travel, and so often that you know that inspirational moment will come will come from a teacher. I think if you had fifty people on this podcast and you asked them all. You know, it will be a it will be a combination of inspiration from either family or or, mm. or teachers. So often yes. it, it's that or volunteers in sports clubs, you know, coaches. It's I would yeah. hazard a guess if you had the Venn diagram, most of that grey area would be filled with 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 family teachers and coaches.
0: And that's why the work that an organisation like greenhouse sports does is essential
1: it's life changing and it, there's no there's no grey area here it is life changing and i've seen it you know i've been very privileged to 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 work uh, closely with greenhouse and you know the i talked about my foundation we've we've you know for a, a few years now we've been supporting greenhouse and i've seen it from <laughs> from the you know the desktop drawings the Reconversion of the uh, uh, of of the centre in Marylebone, and you know, table tennis has you know broadened into outreach programs and after school programs, and now coaching in you know in schools all over the place. So no, it's it's absolute absolute game changer.
0: You mentioned table tennis and. One of the greenhouse sports mentors, coaches that I've been lucky enough to talk to is a chap called Jason Sugru, very talented table tennis player. And he came out with a fantastic line where he was offered an opportunity to work with elite sport. And he said, no, the, for me, the opportunity to change the lives of people who are in need superseded that. Now, uh, you're someone who's obviously got a foot in both camps. Um, how do you compare the two, obviously doing what you have done, uh, both as an athlete, as an administrator, what you're doing currently, and then, though, through, for example, your foundation, through Greenhouse Sports, that ability to really impact the lives of of people who haven't got quite those same advantages that
1: many of us are lucky enough to get? Look, in a perfect world, you'd do both, wouldn't you? Now, people often... Uh, tiresome arguments or discussions with me about you know we if you go back in you know certainly british sport for the last 30 or 40 years sporadically we have these rather tiresome conversations discussions about you know should we be funding excellence or is it all about participation it's about both mm. it's about both yeah uh, they're both inextricably linked you know, if i i will always believe that the well-stocked shop window attracts people into the store. You know, if you've got a cluster of lustrous Olympians like Mo Farah and Jess Ennis and Chris Hoy and Sarah Weir, people like that, then you have got the shop window. Now, not everybody is going to be attracted in because they want to be a Mo Farah. But, you know, I've just seen the impact Mo Farah has you know, when he wanders through, you know, a crowd after an athletics event or when he's actually just out there. It's huge. And we also, post-COVID, really have a responsibility. Governments have rather belatedly woken up to the fact that they actually should have a responsibility. They should be accountable for, you know, health and wellbeing, particularly amongst young people in in tough communities now i genuinely for all sorts of reasons not just because it's been my life but i actually genuinely think that sport and investment in sport and not just elite sport but participation and the type of stuff that greenhouse does in the voluntary sector is the best social policy you'll ever have it's the best education health economic, uh, civil society, social cohesion, nation building set of policies you'll ever have. And the investment is is minuscule compared to the challenge if you don't have kids physically active, mentally um, in, in a good place. And physical inactivity, we know is going to be the huge drag anchor on our ability to maintain global status economically. I don't want to reduce it simply to lots of people working really hard. But the nature of the world is, particularly post-COVID, that the lesson we've learned is we went into COVID with these rather sort of mushy journalistic observations and political observations. I probably made them myself. You know we're all in this together it's going to be the great level it wasn't the great level it hit the same it hit those communities who have always been vulnerable to disruption economic social political it hit them harder than it hit those that had the 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 ability to to withstand that and so actually using sport and and I would say athletics, wouldn't I? Because I think that's the most accessible of all sports. You don't need expensive cars or yachts or massive equipment. If you, you've you got a body, you're an athlete, you can roll out of your front door and you can jog. I mean, it, it's about as simple as that. And a billion and a half people over the course of a few weeks identified themselves as leisure runners around the world. And more people do what I, we do than, than any other sport. So I think sport should position itself now, particularly post-COVID, not just as a sort of, you know, it's about elite sport and medals and, you know, where do we finish on a league table or, you know, Downing Street receptions because somebody does something outstanding. If politicians were smart, governments were smart, they would realise that actually a sports policy, a good sports policy is going to help them build up the immunity Or The the health and well-being and the ability of vulnerable communities to withstand these shocks better than they currently are.
0: Well, I've heard you talk about during your Hall of Fame athletics career that your mental strength came in a big part from the physical well-being and conditioning that you had. And the link between the two is... So close. I know, speaking from my own experience, when I'm fit, I feel better equipped to deal with the highs and lows of life.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, even today, I, I, I run every other day. I try to do something modestly each day. But it, in running for me is a, is a lifesaver. I know I can have three or four things that I think are you know challenging, problems that are rolling around in head like a tumble dryer, really. I go out for a run, and an hour later, I'm asking myself, what is the issue? It, it suddenly, you know, things become a whole heap clearer. Uh, and, and I think that the, the, the mental cleansing, in a way, that you get from, you know, modest amounts of exercise, and I'm not talking about Olympic programs, I'm just talking about the ability to go out and walk. You know, it's, it, it's really important it's really important. And we're falling so well, be- I mean, we are sadly falling so far below, you know, any of the World Health Organization and, uh, levels of, you know, physical, uh, you know, physical fitness. I mean, we're, we're way off the pace. And we're not the only country that, that's in that situation.
0: Yes, it's a concerning trend, certainly. And that Brings me to another of your key mentors, so George Gandhi at Loughborough University, the man who introduced you to revolutionary stuff that really, you know, helped you. But I I read an interesting article actually that he had written where he was talking about the how youngsters are not getting out and playing and using their legs like they used to. And he was talking about how worried, you know, he that makes him for the for the future. And you've touched on it there, but you know, how worried are you that? people, young people are not getting the same levels of physical activity that they even did,
1: you know, a few generations ago? I I think it's, for me, it's a profound concern. I, You know, I can't remember the exact statistic, but I won't be that far wrong. I think between the age of eight or nine and 12 or 13, the average child in the UK becomes 50% less active. Mm. You speak to any general practitioner, you speak to any you know, healthcare uh, professional, they'll tell you that they're dealing now with illnesses and pathologies that they would normally have been dealing with people in sort of late middle age. They're now dealing with sometimes in their, people, uh, you know, are, are, you know, got type two diabetes, other issues that you would, you know, that you wouldn't normally see until your middle, you know, late middle ages. They're now dealing with this, for some people in their late twenties. So th- this is a problem. Uh, this is a problem. And look, you know, I, I did some work for David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, immediately after the London Games. And he was very focused on the need to do something about physical inactivity. He could see that it was an issue. And we created a unit, which I sort of headed up for a little bit in the, from the Cabinet Office. Uh, and it was really about getting all the different government departments to recognise that they had a part to play in this, that the days of saying, well, you know, somebody's a beast, so it's a problem for the NHS, Is I mean, if it's ever made sense, it certainly doesn't make sense now. Um, And it was really good because for the very first time, and we really did make some progress, I would sit in a Cabinet subcommittee where, you know, you had the Secretary of State for Defence, you had the Secretary of State for for transport, education, health, uh, DCMS. And everybody began to recognise that they had a part to play in that. So for instance, I remember uh, when we were doing some work, talking to a group of kids in uh, in East London, I went back to one of the schools that we worked very closely with during the games. And I started asking them questions, I knew what the answer would be. So for instance, I said to them, well, so, you know, What about walking to school? What about taking, you know, riding a bike? Well, bikes are expensive and often they would explain that there wasn't anywhere to leave them. And if you left them, you know, most places they get stolen. And oh, walking to school or even cycling to school meant sometimes going across a gang boundary, which was a risk you're suddenly recognising this has got nothing to do with the National Health Service. It's about law enforcement. It's about policing. You know, if you think, for instance, that you want more people to exercise, then you have to do something about your planning system. So it's not NHS, it's planning. And if you genuinely think that it's better to zero rate reading matter, because you want a nation, of people that read, or you want kids to go to school properly clothed, so you zero rate school clothing or or children's clothing, then why would you not think about doing the same for gym memberships or tax breaks for volunteer sports clubs or gym equipment? Uh, So that then becomes about tax and spend. It's a treasury issue. So, I don't think you're going to make the kind of progress that you or I or 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 the people that are the founding inspiration behind Greenhouse want to make until government recognises that it's very much a cross-departmental issue, and sadly, that got um, that fell into abeyance really when david left office and you know a new leader came in who just really didn't see the value of it um and it's a shame because i do think that is a that is a template that can work yes
0: it's the difference in many ways between the ambulance at the bottom of the hill and the fence at the top right seb i, I want to get back to the to the mentors we've touched on george and david i want to move on to your father now but just a quick word on people like george and david how much of a, a base are people like that, the, the values they hold and the empathy they have for other people? How much of a factor is that in the way mentors can really influence and impact people's lives in such a profound
1: way? It's everything. And, you know, George worked with me and he worked with top athletes like Jack Buckner and Paula Radcliffe. But the other great thing was that George also worked with athletes with less talent and he took as much pleasure out of getting 100%, 120% out of an athlete that doubted their own ability uh, and <clears throat> it was really interesting at his funeral, it dearly didn't matter the quality of the athlete, everybody felt that as far as George was concerned, he was their coach, and he knew as much about them as anybody else in their lives. And I think that was the great—that's the great quality that good coaches bring, and that is that you know, for those moments you're with them uh, in your career, you sort of feel that they're the, you're the only one that matters in their world.
0: Yes. Well, they
1: talk about that
0: sort of thing when it comes to charisma, and I'm not talking about faking it and pretending that the person you're speaking to is the most important person in the room, but if you can genuinely treat someone in that way, people can't help but be drawn to you, and also, more importantly, the impact you can have on someone is so very profound.
1: Let me sort of broaden it out. I know it's, you know, I wouldn't obviously put her in the mentoring category, but you know on the occasions i have met her majesty the queen and it's a topical moment because it's you know we've just gone through a, a you know an amazing jubilee she has exactly that ability that clearly well briefed and but the conversation is not stilted and it's born i think of a deep interest in people and i think good coaches good mentors good teachers are fundamentally got to like people. They they want to feel that they, they, they are permanently on a mission just to get the best out of people, regardless of whether they're ultimately going to be able to convert that talent into an Olympic medal or maybe winning a club championship. But for great coaches, that is still as big an honour and as big a, an incentive. And I think it, the commonality here is how do I get the most out of out of people?
0: Yes, I think that's such an important point to emphasize in the this day of marginal gains and the golden bullet. Actually, as you said with the Queen, it's that love and empathy and interest in people that actually is top of the list. Now, Seb, I'm slightly conscious of time, so I'm going to skip forward a little bit to the to the Federer Nadal rivalry of the '80s. You know of whom I'm speaking. You and Steve Evet and the role, obviously, your your father. Uh, played in your dramatic um, olympics in in 1980 firstly just to mention obviously you raced actually against Steve first time in 1972 neither of you won the race which i found very interesting no we didn't
1: i think he finished ninth i finished ninth he finished second and
0: then so 1979 you had a fantastic season three world records in 41 yeah. days but let's move to moscow 1980 so there you were and people talk about, because there was the boycott, but for the middle distance, it didn't matter. It was all about you. And I've heard people say it wasn't the Moscow games. It was the Co-OVET games. And I know, I know you, obviously, your your love of Chelsea precedes you, but I think it's wonderful to look back and realise that athletics at that time knocked football off its perch, to borrow one of Sir Alex Ferguson's famous phrases. But... For those people who aren't aware of the events of 1980 that summer, you were favourite to win the 800. Steve Ovett was favourite to win the 1500. Now, I've read you talk about your father recognising that the night before the 800 meters final, he could sense that that something wasn't quite up with you and didn't quite know what to do. So, can you just talk a little bit about what difficulty perhaps you found ahead of that race, and also the difficulty perhaps your father found
1: and, and your relationship, how it fitted into that? Yeah, look, I mean, Moscow, for all sorts of reasons, I won't go back into the history of it, was a challenge for anybody there because if you mm. remember the Soviet Union, the then Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, plus a change. Um, yeah. uh, the Americans under Jimmy Carter pushed for a boycott, Margaret Thatcher, uh, freshly elected, Prime Minister wanted to solidify the US, you know, uh, British special relationship. She fell in behind them. The Germans fell in behind. The Australians did as well. And it was a, it was a big, you know, it was a, there was a big political uh, stage before we even got to the competition. I mean, there were training sessions I was doing in Sheffield in sort of April, May, where I was questioning whether I'd even be at the Games. But having to maintain your focus through that was was really quite important. Uh, and I had come through. You, you mentioned the world records in 1979, although I was the world record holder, which actually breaking three world records in 41 days on the eve of an Olympic Games, is not the, it's not the best way to go into a Games with a low profile and no pressure. So, you know, for many who were probably a little less tutored in the nature of my sport, just to automatically assume, well, if you're the world record holder at those distances, you're automatically going to to win. So for, for half the nation, I'd already gone there with medals hanging around my neck. Of course, it's never quite that easy. And although I was running fast, I had only really up to that point had one experience of championship racing. And that was in the 1978 European Championships in Prague. I was still a university student at Loughborough. And anybody that competes at that level will tell you there's a mountain of difference. I mean, it's like the difference between county cricket and test match cricket. It's the difference between, you know, the championship in football and getting into the national team. I mean, the jump is massive. And a lot of people don't make it, and it's often not just simply about physical ability, it's your ability to sustain the or to sustain the focus and to withstand some of the pressures that come with you know competitions and championships and Olympic Games. So I went to Moscow in supreme physical condition for all of the reasons I've explained to you, but probably less equipped than many in those championships to deal with the pressures of a big competition. Then throw in the best athlete of, arguably the most naturally talented athlete I ever ran against. The guy had gone 40-something races, undefeated at the distance. And, you know, you had the perfect storm. And the night before the 800, you know, I I just, I didn't feel quite right. You know, I, I didn't sleep, which is unusual for me. I can sleep through anything. Um, And then the following morning, I just felt I was clumsy. I dropped, I remember, you know, dropping a jug of milk when I was putting, you know, I was just not in the, my father, who was a good observer, and it it, is, it's to his, you know, to his dying days, literally, he said it was the, it was the, it was the toughest call he had to make, because he sensed that I wasn't myself. And the big coaching conundrum was, do I say something and risk, and he's fine, and risk putting something in his mind that makes him think that I'm questioning? Or do I say something or or do I just sort of leave it alone and, you know, and almost buck my own instincts? I actually had had a really revealing conversation with... um, Uh, Eddie Jones, the England rugby coach. And I told, told him about this. He said, your father had the classic coaching dilemma. He said, it is the biggest dilemma any coach faces. You know, when is the right moment to say something? When is it not the right moment to say something? And he said, I just, he said, when you told me that story, he said, I can think of so many occasions I've been in that position. My father, to his dying day, literally regretted he didn't say something. because He said, if, I'd, if we'd actually had this out around the table and we just sat and talked about you know, all the things you'd done to get to where you'd got to and you know, the speed and the pace and your qualities as an athlete, I think you'd have probably been OK. In a way, it's all irrelevant because Steve deserved to win the 800. There's no question about it. He was the better athlete on the day. And I made loads and loads of mistakes. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't think I've ever want, run actually a worse 800 in my life I mean it would have been hard to replicate that even if I tried to do it and and interestingly the you know so that was when I it was then not about my father or my coach or George or any of my backroom team I then had to deal with that loss myself over the next three or four days before I got back on the track for the 1500 and that's a lonely moment where you just sit there and you go actually the the only person that can you know resurrect this moment is you it's not coaches it isn't your mentors it's not dave jackson it's you've got to take responsibility for this and
0: i heard a lovely story that for me illustrated the power of perspective and humor so correct me if i'm wrong the next morning you're in bed tucked up, not wanting to get out of bed. In storms, the one and only Daley Thompson.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my closest friend. Yeah, and I I was sort of lying there and he went, literally, so what are you doing? I went, oh, yeah. And I said lamely to him, what does the weather look like? And Daley ripped open the curtains, which, you know, for Daley means almost pulling them out of the wall. And he looked out there, and he just turned back to me, and he went, "It all looks a bit silver out there." <laughs> and that is the Daily Thompson School of Psychotherapy. And it was funny. I mean, I remember laughing at the time, and it was probably the beginning of my. It was big, <clears throat> probably the beginning of the return journey. Well, that
0: certainly gives the impression. I can't imagine Daily thinking, "Should I or should I not say something?" It would always. It would always be should I should. No, no, no. <laughs> D-
1: there are no, they're very Daily <laughs> has very few filters. If it's on, if it's on his mind, he will say it, which is a great is is a is a great if a little disarming attribute.
0: Yes, indeed, and but uh, fantastic that that was in some ways a bit of a, a trigger for you to to regroup, and you did regroup brilliantly. And I mean, the um, uh, David Coleman saying, "What an incredible comeback!" For when you did win the fifteen hundred, and Steve Avet had you know been unbeaten for so long in the the event, and to actually come back and win the 1,500 metres gold. In fact, if you wouldn't mind just moving your head just slightly to the left, uh, Lord Co, just so we can see. So there it is.
1: Well, that's that's There great. we
0: go, right there. And, yeah. you know, you lifting your arms as you cro- cross the line. And you could see the, the joy and the satisfaction uh, when when you did that. But, I mean, to to come back from the disappointment of the 1,800 and then be able to regroup and win an event in which you weren't expected to win... What if you had to distill that down into one brief lesson that that anyone could take from coming back from a disappointment, which we all go through, and yours was obviously magnified and amplified? But you know, what would you say to
1: to anyone about what you learned? I think you have to. I think you have to make an assessment of at that moment whether it's a race, whether it's a business deal, whether it's a moment of you know a personal crisis, whatever it happens to be. I think you have to. Ask yourself three questions. The first is, "Where are you?" You know, where are you at this moment? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a it's it's a proper audit, and it's an internal audit, and only you can answer that. And be honest with yourself about you it. You have to be. They, they, you have to be brutally honest with yourself. The second question you then ask is, "Well, where do I want to be?" Hmm. And the third question is pretty obvious: is how do I get there? Yeah, and That's. I don't think there's much more than that. I did permanently keep reminding myself that, you know, you, to famously quote David Coleman, um, you don't become a bad athlete overnight. You know, you can have a. We can all have a bad day in the office, but it doesn't sort of. It shouldn't define your whole career. Every day's a new day, kind of thing. Yeah. Every day is a new day, and that there were things that i just had to keep reminding myself and and actually some of it was about friends and family and support and sometimes sacrifice which i know my own family made to support me and then remind yourself about the hundreds and hundreds of miles you've run across derbyshire Derbyshire Dale, down Dale, hills in sheffield (laughs) The weight training sessions that have left you so tired you could barely rip the steering wheel from in the car for half an hour after you've done them. <clears throat> and you just have to keep reminding yourself yeah. about what it is that has forged you in the first place and why you're doing it. Yeah, And actually, the, the why in all that is often, I think, at those moments as important as, well, how do I get out of this hole? Yeah. Okay, it's a, it's inevitably a suffusion of the two. And that's what those few days were about, actually.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I would recommend anyone to go back and watch the two races. They are utterly compelling. And then four years later, you were very rare in being able to defend your title in the 1500 uh, against the odds again. And you turned to the press and, and gave them the roar because they they doubted you. So, But I, I want to skip forward because, obviously, you know that was a, a great success but it, it's far from just being your your athletics career you know your obviously your career since uh retiring in 1990 so your sports administration career and the, the pinnacle for for many people are, will be the role you played in London 2012 which obviously for me was I was lucky enough to be there. I interviewed you, as as you know, for for Radio One
1: in the on the eve of the games. When you, you know how you got that interview, do you? My kids said, "Don't be boring and just keep appearing on sports programs. Do something interesting." And so they nudged me to Radio One. I, I was thrilled.
0: <laughs> I was thrilled, and I remember just how cool you seemed and so calm and collected. Because people forget, actually, in the run up to the games, there was. You know some negative headlines, and it and it really did supersede expectations. And even the weather came out. But actually, I want to just return to something a few years previously, which was what was considered to be a fundamental moment in London winning the games because Paris. And I remember I'd visited Paris in two thousand and five for that year's French Open tennis, and the Eiffel Tower was lit up with with their bid. And London was by no means you know a big favorite or anything like that. And you gave a speech to the IOC in. 2005 that was seen to be a real turning point now public speaking is considered to be you know one of the great fears for so many people so can you just tell us a little bit about you know how you approach that your attitude during it and what anyone could learn from from grasping an opportunity like that away from athletics
1: I was determined to speak if I allow myself to say this from the heart this couldn't be a speech that anybody else could write. It wasn't something that you know, a, a group of speech writers could sit down and play around and wordsmith. It, it, this was such a personal story that I had to convey about the 11 year old, the inspiration of two teachers in my city of Sheffield who won medals in the Mexico games, the inspiration for me to go and join an athletics club and for and i wanted my story not to be understood because it was my story but because i genuinely felt that it was the template that the games could adopt for so many kids like me and so that's all i really did i told a story and i remember lee my communications teams were getting really nervous because it was only like two or three days beforehand. I still hadn't written the, the closing speech. And I remember, and I thought, no, it, 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 it will come. And I'd had thoughts, you know, and, and I wanted to absorb the journey that the bid had taken me on and the experiences and the people I'd talked to. And I then sat down. I remember it was four o'clock in the morning at the side of a swimming pool in our, our hotel in Singapore. Uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> as people that know me well know that technology is not my sweet spot. So I, I still write and prefer to write longhand. Um, and I, I wrote the speech longhand with a fountain pen at the side of the pool at four o'clock in the morning, and the words flowed very easily. Um, and I didn't alter. You know i i returned to it a couple of times tinkered with a few expressions but very little of it did i did i alter and it was very similar to the opening and closing the closing speech i made at the uh, at the games in 2012 again was written a couple of nights before and it was really a synthesis of stories that i absorbed from volunteers and and so I, I I I think good speech making, and I'm I'm not an expert, but I think good speech making is 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 about storytelling. And don't create a synthetic history. Just you know the narrative is so much closer to home than you think. And you know, on those occasions it's just worth you know, not doing it in a hurry, but just letting letting those experiences almost osmotically absorb. And then you'll find, then you'll find the words. And and the great thing that people tend to forget is when you make a speech, actually, unless it's pre-released, so you've got all the politicos sitting at the back of the room and, you know, they can see the sound bites that they're supposed to pick up in their articles and, you know, the clever speech, right? Uh, on most occasions, nobody has a clue about what you're going to say. They're not sitting there with a script going, oh, he didn't quite get, or they're, so capturing their imagination through storytelling, I think is, is, is a huge, is, is the difference between good and, you know, and, and great speech, speech makers.
0: I love what you said there as well as about trusting that it would come. And, and I think that speaks volumes because we can all stress about the future, but, Trusting that when the moment comes, the resources will be available to you. And it just happened to be at 4 a.m. sat next to a swimming pool.
1: Yeah, I remember waking up and thinking, I don't know why, I remember waking up thinking, I can write this now.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, powerful. Now, last few things, Seb. A couple of things that I've I've read about. Before we get on to the power of sport as a social worker, I read an interview that you did actually with uh, your friend Al or Alistair Campbell. And he spoke about, you know, you can never replace elite sport, And he spoke about the chasing of winning. I wondered if on reflection it is about the chasing of winning or was it being lost in the moment during those races? Yeah. When you were coming around the corner in Moscow, you weren't thinking about, okay, what happened yesterday or what happened tomorrow? You were there in, in the most pure present form. So which is it? Is it the winning or is it the joy of, of the competition and losing yourself? Or is it, again, like you said, a mixture of both?
1: I think it's a mixture of everything, isn't it? Um, Look, I think if you speak to most athletes, most people in sport that get across the line in one way or another, their first emotional response, well, mine was, was less about the elation of having won. It was the relief of not having let people down. Um, You know, if you think about in my own career, you know, people like, you know, my father, my family, George, David, people like that. You know, my backroom team of American, you know, sports, you know, orthopods and, you know, anatomists and all that sort of stuff. You know, they've, they've given, you know, they're not often being paid to do this. They're doing it because they're absolutely passionate about it. They like you. They want to help you. And I think your first emotion getting across the line is, oh, thank God I haven't let them down. I can now I can now face them. It probably shouldn't be, but it is. So it is about the winning, which is important. And yes, you do get lost. I mean, once that gun goes, there's nothing else you think about. You know, you know, the, the, it's almost like everything goes blank. You can't, and you don't hear anything. You know, you you can be in a stadium with the most extraordinary roar. You don't hear that. I can remember every virtually every step of every race I've run, and I can remember when I've made the right decision. I can sadly remember when I've made the wrong decision. But winning is is hugely important. But the relief, I think, of getting across the line is not a personal one. It's about the team that's been around. you. Collective. Interesting.
0: OK, now you talk about sport being the greatest social worker. We have touched on this, Seb, but could you just just talk to to this a little bit, Um, you know, perhaps in the context of of the stuff we've spoken about with Greenhouse, with the government, with activity levels, but the power of sport and its role as
1: a social worker in many ways. Well, I think it's profound. I think it is the most potent social worker we've got in, in our communities. I would add to that, I think, also at a diplomatic level, which is often overlooked, I think sport is a powerful player as well certainly in soft power but going back to the social worker again it's for me it's only what i've ever experienced you know I, I i saw the type of work that went way beyond the role of a coach in a in a city athletics club in sheffield in the 70s i joined Harringay athletics club in a really challenged community in northeast london um i know the impact that that had, I was very privileged to be captain of Harringay Athletic Club for a few years. You know, 40% of the kids I trained with and were friendly with at that club were born or brought up on the Broadwater Farm Estate. You know, you don't have to go back too far to remember the history of, of that place. And The coaches at Harringay were often the only male or female role models in the lives of young people. Um, they were the ones that were always more aware sometimes of what was going on in the lives of those athletes that they coached way, way beyond the track and were uh, uh, you know, a network of, of safety for them. So time and time again, I've just seen the role that sport has played, uh, particularly in really hard pressed communities. And that's why I'm so passionate about doing everything as a nation and individually and collectively and through great organisations like Greenhouse to just add some horsepower to that great potential that's out there.
0: And just finally, as well, the power of sport in terms of activism. Obviously, you in your role, World Athletics, took a tough decision regarding Russia long before the latest, um, you know, difficulties that, that that have beset Europe, but also as well athletes in recent years, and in fact even back to obviously the the Black Power Salutes in the sixties. But you know the power of sport to affect change within society.
1: Well, again, I, you know, I've been privileged to to witness that. You know, all right, we talked about Moscow. Um, I did go to Moscow. On the basis that, you know, I I actually like to think that, all right, it was a few more years, but that was the beginning of the in the infancy of change. I sat in, I mean, just randomly. You know, I sat at the Afro Asian opening ceremony, the Afro Asian Games, the opening ceremony in two thousand and four in Hyderabad. At that moment, India and Pakistan were effectively, sadly, on a war footing you know, incursions and and shootings across the border. Two groups of foreign ministers met discreetly in the margins of the Afro-Asian Games to try to discuss how they could reduce tensions. And the re-implementation of a test match between India and Pakistan was what they came up with. And it did, to a certain extent, help. I've seen North and South Korea walk into the same stadium when politicians had not got within a country mile of that east and west timor in in the sydney games you know time and time again i've seen the impact that sport has had you know the famous ping pong diplomacy that allowed you know kissinger to make that discreet trip to china and, and nixon to 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 start the, the 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 you know discussions to try and normalize relationships it it, it you know it it's there and it's historic and it's, it's, it's real time. Yes. Well, listen, Lord Coe, uh, you
0: know, you've been at the forefront of sport, and you've been a fantastic ambassador both on the track and in everything you've done since. It's been, it was a pleasure talking to you on the eve of 2012 and it's the pleasure, a pleasure talking to you on another sunny day today. So, listen, thank you so much for sparing your time. Best of luck getting through your in and we just really appreciate it. No, I've, re- I've really,
1: really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: thanks for listening to this episode of my playbook with sebco as i mentioned at the start 2022 is greenhouse sports 20th anniversary please do check out the incredible work they do by visiting greenhousesports.org and if you'd like to get involved and help please do get in touch all the details are on their website and please do share rate and review this episode wherever you can thank you very much for listening and until next time goodbye